Good morning. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we're asking you to do something this morning that we can't do for ourselves. We're asking you to take this word and to change us by it. We're asking you to help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. We want to be more like him. So would you help us, Lord? Help this word not to just go in one ear, out the other ear, but would you change us where it matters, in our hearts. We commit it all to you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm wondering if you've ever flunked a test. I remember flunking a big geometry exam my sophomore year of high school, and I blame it on the Boston Red Sox. See, my dad and I had tickets to a Sox-Yankees game at Fenway Park the night before my test. And since Boston is about a four-hour drive from where I grew up in Vermont, by the time we pulled back into our driveway, it was already the next morning, already time to go to school. So I flunked. And I really don't remember anything about the test itself, probably because I didn't sleep or study the night before. What I do remember is the Red Sox rallying to victory in the bottom of the eighth and the Fenway faithful going bananas. Now, I'll admit that I was wrong not to study for my exam. To be honest, I wish I paid more attention in geometry because to this day, I really don't know how geometry works. But in the grand scheme of things, and maybe if you teach geometry, just plug your ears for a moment, but in the grand scheme of things, flunking one geometry test isn't really that big of a deal. At least not compared to flunking the unity test that our passage describes. You see, the quality of our gospel grasp is tested by whether it produces true unity. All who pledge allegiance to the gospel of grace must pass the unity test. We must not flunk. And our passage is kind of like a study guide. We're going to get two case studies, one from Paul and one from Peter, that will help us not only to evaluate how we're doing in the realm of unity, but also, if we're not doing so great, to turn it around. I'm convinced that our passage offers the key to a life of accepting one another, even in our most difficult relationships. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. And follow along as I read the first ten verses. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Then after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, 
what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now it's been a few weeks since we were in Galatians, so let's review a couple of things. Remember that Paul was writing to Gentile believers who were quickly deserting the true gospel and replacing it with another gospel. This false gospel, you may recall, came from Paul's opponents, the Judaizers, who claimed that Paul was a phony apostle. They said that he got his gospel from the Jerusalem apostles and then cut out inconvenient doctrines to suit his man-centered agenda. But after cursing the Judaizers in the first part of chapter 1, Paul then proves that his gospel came not from man, but directly from God himself. He was independent from man in his conversion, and he was independent from man in his early Christian life. Now in our passage, Paul is still arguing that he and his gospel are legit. But the emphasis is different. He's no longer focused on the independent origin of his gospel. He's now focused on how the other apostles received his gospel. Will they stand united behind Paul? That's the big question. Paul's gospel is put to the test in Galatians 2. So let me build the scene out a little bit. Why is Paul's gospel tested? Well, I think the context is helpful, and let me encourage you to follow along on your bulletin outline. I think it's going to really help you today. So there was a big debate in first century Galatia over this question. Must Gentiles become like Jews to be saved? You see, in the Old Testament, when a Gentile joined the Israelites, he had to become like a Jew by embracing the practices of the Jewish law. But with Christ's death and resurrection in the rearview mirror, there was debate over whether those customs still applied. Paul said no. He taught that Gentile Christians did not need to become like Jews because Christ has ushered in a new covenant era, which makes those Old Testament requirements void. But the Judaizers balked here. They insisted that even post-Christ, Gentile Christians must become like Jews to be saved. They wanted to Judaize the Gentiles, as their name suggests. Now, the Judaizers alleged that the Jerusalem apostles, and it seems especially the apostle Peter, endorsed their message. And that was probably an effective tactic. Because remember, Paul's not in Galatia anymore to defend himself. He's been gone for about one or two years by the time he writes this letter. And with no modern communications, no internet, no phones, no newspapers... It would have been hard for the Galatians to discredit the claim that Paul was out of sorts with the Jerusalem apostles. 
But here's really where the underlying issue was. It was a disagreement about justification. Let me unpack that a little bit. You see, as sinners, our greatest need is righteousness. And that's a big problem because you and I can't produce our own righteousness. We're unrighteous, fundamentally. But Christ makes it possible for us to be counted as righteous before God. That is justified despite our sin. On the cross, Christ bore our sins. He paid the penalty for them. We know he paid the full penalty because of his resurrection. And with our sins taken away, Christ gives us or credits us with his righteousness. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. That means, Christian, that you're righteous in God's sight right at this very moment. And you say, well, I've had a bad week. I've got all this sin. But here's the thing. You're not righteous because you stack up, but because Christ stacks up. His righteousness is your righteousness because you're justified. But here's where the rub was in first century Galatia. According to Paul's gospel, justification comes only by faith in Christ. No works needed. By implication, that means that Gentiles don't need to become like Jews to be saved. Their faith is enough. But the Judaizers saw it differently. In their view, yes, faith in Christ was necessary for justification, but so too were works of the law like circumcision. Thus their gospel imposed Jewishness on the Gentiles. It insisted that Gentiles become like Jews to be saved. So with that background established, let's see what happens when Paul puts his gospel to the test at Jerusalem. Now he sets the scene in verses 1 and 2. He went up to Jerusalem after 14 years. And that's important because back in 117, Paul said that he didn't visit the Jerusalem apostles when he was first saved. Remember, he was independent from them. But now, 14 years later, it's finally time to confer with the other apostles. And Paul brings Barnabas and Titus with him. The Galatians probably knew Barnabas since he was with Paul when they first encountered the gospel. Titus, though, wasn't there as far as we know. Paul will explain his significance in a moment. But first we get some more details about the Jerusalem visit in verse 2. Paul goes up because of a divine revelation. And he doesn't give us any juicy details about that revelation. But the main point is clear. Paul's visit was divinely orchestrated. And because of this revelation, Paul presents his gospel to the other apostles. He presents it privately not interested in bravado or fame, and he presents it before those seeming to be influential. Now, why does he say that? That's not a diss against the other apostles, as if they're not really influential. No, but these apostles seemed extra influential to the Judaizers in Galatia. To Paul's detractors, they had significant clout. And why does Paul present his gospel to them? It's to ensure that he's not running or had not run in vain. Which doesn't mean that he's not confident in his gospel. After all, Paul had been preaching it for over a decade. 
Rather, he's concerned that the Jerusalem apostles might oppose the essence of his gospel, that they might disagree with him that the Gentiles are justified by faith alone. So Paul takes the unity test at Jerusalem. Will he pass? Will the other apostles stand behind him in his gospel? Now, verse 3 to 10 indicate that Paul does indeed pass the test. And those test results are divided into two parts. First, we see that Paul passes because the apostles accept uncircumcised Timothy. Now, a brief word of admonition here before we go on. I'm about to say a bunch of stuff about circumcision. And I'm concerned that you might tune me out. See, in our culture, we're super squeamish about the whole topic of circumcision. That is the removal of foreskin covering the male genital. But here's the thing. The Bible is not squeamish about circumcision. In fact, the Bible uses the imagery of circumcision. That's right, I said imagery to illustrate the gospel, as we'll unpack in a moment. So can I make a recommendation? Let's not squirm about what the Bible doesn't squirm about. Let's not recuse ourselves from a valuable gospel lesson. All right, enough said. So verse 3 tells us that Titus is a Greek, meaning he isn't circumcised. And Jerusalem could be a dicey place for a first century uncircumcised Christian like Titus to go because there were a lot of Judaizers there that wanted to force circumcision on to Gentiles like Titus. And if the Jerusalem apostles allow that to happen to poor Titus, that would render Paul's gospel, which said that Gentiles don't need circumcision, it would have rendered it as insufficient. But verse 3 tells us that Titus isn't forced to be circumcised. I'm sure he was really happy about that. Instead, Paul defies the Judaizers right on their home turf in Jerusalem. Notice how Paul describes them in verse 4 to 5. They are false brothers who secretly slipped into the church to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ to bring us to slavery. They snuck in to bring Gentiles like Titus back to the works of the law, back to slavery under the old covenant. But Paul and Barnabas openly defy these enslaving imposters. Not even for a moment do they comply with their demands. Why? So that, verse 5 says, the truth of the gospel might be preserved for the Galatians. See, circumcision is a gospel issue. Before Christ came, circumcision was required for anyone wanting to join God's people. In fact, keep your finger in Galatians 2 and turn back to Genesis 17 for a moment. Genesis 17. We just, need to, we just need to see this clearly. Genesis 17, starting in verse 10. This is God speaking to Abraham, the father of the Jews. And God says this, verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is brought, bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from this people. He has broken my covenant. Do you see how significant circumcision was for the Jews? Every male had to be circumcised. Even foreigners had to be circumcised. And uncircumcised people must be cut off. Talk about vivid imagery. Circumcision is a big deal in the Old Testament. But the problem with physical circumcision is that it's only physical. That was the fundamental problem with Israel. Sure, they were circumcised on the outside, but slicing off a piece of foreskin doesn't change a heart. That's why we need a better covenant. A new covenant where circumcision is at the heart level. Ezekiel 36 promises a day when this would actually happen. God would remove hearts of stone, cutting them off as in circumcision, and replace them with new hearts. And friends, Jesus Christ made that possible. Jesus was cut off like a dirty, unclean foreskin when he died on the cross. He became cursed for us. He hung there not for his own sins, but as a substitute for spiritually uncircumcised sinners like you and me. And here's what happens when we trust Christ for salvation. God's Spirit circumcises our hearts. God's Spirit cuts off the foreskin of sin that covered and controlled our heart and gives us a new circumcised heart, a heart that's free to follow God. And here's what Galatians 2 is driving home. The spiritual circumcision that comes by faith in Christ makes physical circumcision unnecessary. That's why Titus didn't need outpatient surgery in Jerusalem. In Christ, he'd already been circumcised where it counts. And Christian, that's not just good news for Titus. That is good news for you. By faith in Christ you are a spiritual Titus. The foreskin of your sin has been cut off. Your heart is now free to follow God. Like Titus, you are now part of God's people. Christ has brought you into a better circumcision than that made with hands, the heart circumcision of the Spirit. And in Galatians 2, we see Paul pass the unity test because the other apostles don't force Titus to be circumcised. Titus's acceptance demonstrates that the Jerusalem apostles, just like Paul, see faith in Christ as the only criteria by which we're justified. And Titus isn't the only one accepted at Jerusalem. Verses 6 to 10 show that Paul himself is accepted by the other apostles. In verse 6, Paul says that these seemingly influential apostles don't add anything to his gospel. 
God doesn't show partiality. God doesn't truly view apostles like Peter and James and John as more important than Paul. Nonetheless, even they accept Paul's gospel as is. Verses 7 to 10 go on to say that they give Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Why? Verse 7 says it's because they saw that Paul was entrusted to the gospel to the uncircumcised. And note the parallelism between Paul and Peter. Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the Jews. And in a parallel way, Paul had been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles. For, verse 8 tells us, he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. See, the same God is behind both Peter and Paul. Both apostles share the same gospel. Yes, their audiences are different. Peter focused on the Jews, Paul the Gentiles. Yet their essential message was the same. Faith in Christ is the only criteria necessary to be justified by God. And the Jerusalem apostles not only see how Paul was entrusted with the gospel, verse 9 tells us that they perceived the grace that was given to Paul. James and Cephas and John were like pillars holding up God's spiritual temple, the church. And when these pillars perceived the evident grace in Paul's life, they gave the right hand of fellowship to he and Barnabas so that they might go to the Gentiles. Their only request was to remember the poor, almost certainly the poor Christians in Judea, the very thing Paul was eager to do. I hope you can see how Paul's Jerusalem visit is a slam dunk against the Judaizers. It proves not that Paul is out of step with the Jerusalem apostles, as the Judaizers claimed, but that his gospel had their full endorsement. The other apostles endorse the gospel that justifies by faith alone. Thus, Paul passes the unity test at Jerusalem. The same can't be said, though, for Peter at Antioch. Let's pick it up in verse 11, Galatians 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not! For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. 
For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul says that when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now Antioch was north of Israel, up in Gentile territory, and the church there was a mixed church. It was predominantly Gentile, but also had Jewish Christians. And that can make things like eating together a bit tricky. So if you were hosting a backyard barbecue in first century Antioch, you'd really have your work cut out for you. Because on the one hand, you could have these tight box Jewish Christians come, and they might still be observing Jewish dietary regulations and Jewish scruples about how you prepare all the food and Jewish holy days. But on the other hand, you'd have these unkempt Gentile hillbillies who have no problem eating whatever they want, whenever they want, and maybe don't even care if the food that you're serving was offered to some idol. Now verse 12 tells us that before certain men from James show up, Peter, a Jew, was eating with the unsophisticated Gentiles. And we don't know what that entailed. I mean, was he eating a pulled pork sandwich? We just don't know. We don't get that kind of detail. But we see clearly that Peter was accepting his Gentile brothers and sisters. He had no problem whatsoever associating with them. But that changes when men from James show up. Peter withdraws and separates himself. And again, Paul doesn't care to elaborate on how things went down. But what's clear is that because he feared the circumcision party, I think that's a reference to the Judaizers, Peter gets scared and stops sitting with the Gentiles. You see, Peter didn't want to look bad. He didn't want to be a laughingstock. So in essence, he denies his more unrefined fellow believers. Kind of reminds me of his denial of Christ in the gospel. You know, when associating with Christ costed Peter, what did he do? He denied him. He withdrew himself. So now in Antioch, when associating with Christ's brothers costed Peter, he withdraws from them too. And verse 13 tells us that Peter's hypocrisy had a domino effect on the rest of the Jews. All of them, even Barnabas, withdraw along with them. But Paul, seeing that Peter's conduct was out of step with the truth of the gospel, publicly rebukes him, saying, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, what on earth does all that mean? Well, I think it means this. Peter was living like a Gentile when he ate with the Gentiles. He was no longer acting like a traditional Jew. But when Peter got scared and withdrew, he was essentially forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews. His actions suggested that they must observe the rules of the Old Testament law to be acceptable. 
Therefore, Peter was a hypocrite. His lack of acceptance towards the Gentiles was a splitting wedge to their unity in Christ. He flunked the unity test at Antioch. But Paul's not finished rebuking Peter. In verses 15 to 21, he explains why Peter deserves a flunking grade. And basically, Peter makes two big mistakes in his application of the gospel of grace. The first and fundamental mistake is that Peter forgot how justification works. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, Paul says in verse 15, which just means that Paul and Peter were Jewish. Paul was a Hellenistic Jew from Tarsus, Peter a Semitic Jew from Capernaum in Israel. By birth, they were part of God's special people, Israel. They weren't Gentile sinners. They weren't clueless pagans. Yet, Paul continues in verse 16, despite this, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul reminds Peter that because they both knew that justification comes by faith, they trusted in Christ for salvation. And note how redundant Paul is in verse 16. He says three times that he and Peter are not justified by works. And he says three times that he and Peter are justified by faith. Paul's driving home a point. Jewish Christians can't be justified by keeping the law. Despite being Jews, Paul and Peter had to put their faith in Christ to be justified. And this is super ironic. Remember, the debate was, must Gentiles become like Jews to be saved? And it turns out that it's not actually the Gentiles who have to become like the Jews. It's actually the Jews who have to become like the Gentiles. It's the Jews who must recognize that their Jewishness cannot justify them. That justification must be by faith, just as it was for the Gentiles. But at Antioch, Peter acted like a Jew again and forgot this fundamental truth. That was his first big mistake. And his second mistake flows from the first. Because Peter forgot how justification works, he then forced law-keeping on the Gentiles. Paul says in verse 17, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Now commentators have different takes on what Paul is saying here. Some argue that Paul and Peter were found to be sinners in the sense that before coming to Christ for justification, their attempts to keep the law only proved their sinfulness. Now that's a defensible position. But I'm inclined to take verse 17 this way. Paul and Peter were found to be sinners in the eyes of others. Specifically in the eyes of the Judaizers at Antioch. I think this interpretation helps explain why Peter was afraid of the circumcision party back in verse 12. To them, Peter looked like a sinner for eating with the dirty Gentiles, since he was no longer observing Jewish food scruples. 
And you can kind of understand that. I mean, Peter grew up in a Jewish context, and for like his whole entire life, he was checking all the Jewish boxes that made them look like Jews to others. Now, all of a sudden, he's eating with, from Jewish perspective, those who were pagans. All of a sudden, he's throwing that in the trash can as far as they're concerned. And so from a traditional Jewish perspective, he looked like a sinner. But in the strongest possible terms, Paul denies that their total dependence on Christ makes him and Peter sinners. Christ is not a servant of sin. That is, Christ in justifying Paul and Peter by faith and not by works did not truly make them sinners. Instead, Paul argues in verses 18 to 20 that it's actually those who return to the law who are the real sinners. He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. See, when someone is justified by faith, they tear down the law. That is, they no longer depend on law-keeping for righteousness. Faith in Christ is a wrecking ball to that law-based approach to God. So to rebuild what has been wrecked, that is, to go back to law-keeping again, is to prove to be a transgressor. See, it's very black and white. Justification by law is incompatible with justification by faith. To go back to the law is to go back to what's broken and cannot save. That's what Peter had started to do. He wasn't a sinner for putting his faith in Christ. No, he was starting to be a sinner by rebuilding the law. Verses 19 to 20 expand on the claim that Christians tear down the law. And verse 19 sums it up. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul, and by extension, all believers died to the law to live to God. Life follows death. Paul's life of workspace justification is dead, and now his new life is lived to God. And how did Paul die to the law? It was through the law itself. See, back in verse 16, when Paul said that he and Peter knew that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. How did they know that law-keeping couldn't justify them? Because back then, tons of Jews thought that justification came by works. Even today, tons of Jews think that justification comes by works. It was through the law. In trying to keep the law, Paul and Peter realized that despite their Jewishness, they couldn't meet the law's demands. Thus, the law showed them their sinfulness and tutored them to Christ. Paul's going to unpack that a lot more in Galatians 3. Verse 20 continues to explain how Christians died to the law and lived to God. And here's, I think, how to think about it. What happened to Christ happens to us. Christ died. We died. Christ lives, we live. We've been crucified with Christ. That means crucified to the law. We've died to pursuing righteousness by law-keeping. Now that we're dead, Christ 
lives in us. His life is our life. That's further clarified in the next statement. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ living in us means that we're not trying to live by works. We now live by faith. Just like Habakkuk 2.4 says, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in God's Son who loved us and gave himself for us. Boy, there's the gospel again. Christ loved us. Despite our sin, despite how we scorned him, Christ loved us such that he gave himself in our place so that we who deserve death might live by faith in him. And that brings us to verse 21, where Paul zooms out to emphasize his main point. I do not nullify the grace of God, he says. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul doesn't undo God's grace by reimposing law-keeping. That's what Peter had started to do at Antioch. And Peter wasn't just wavering a little bit when he did that. No, he was nullifying God's grace. Because if righteousness actually came through the law, that is by works and not by faith, then Christ's death was pointless. It was entirely unnecessary. See, the true gospel is the gospel of grace. It's a gospel that by its very nature demands that we never go back to a works-based approach to God. And the grace gospel says that faith is the only criteria by which God justifies. But when Peter withdrew from the Gentiles, he had started to impose another criteria, namely works of the law on his fellow believers. He acted like faith in Christ wasn't enough for them to be acceptable. In that moment, he acted not like a Christian, but like an enslaving Judaizer. Therefore, he flunked the unity test. Peter flunked the unity test at Antioch. But what about us here in Portland, Maine? Is it possible that any of us are currently flunking the unity test? Perhaps some of you are flunking because you're not even enrolled in the school of Christianity. You have not put your faith in Christ to be justified by grace. Perhaps that's because you don't see your need for grace. You think you can work hard enough to earn God's favor. I hope that the truth of Galatians 2.16 penetrates your heart this morning. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So would you stop your futile efforts to make yourself right with God and admit the obvious truth? You're a sinner in need of grace. You need God to save you through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Put your faith in Christ today. Stop your works and be saved. 
And brothers and sisters, I hope our text has convinced you that unity is a required result of the gospel of grace. The true gospel only exists where true unity exists. No true unity, no true gospel. That means that you've only grasped the true gospel if it's producing true unity in your life. And as Peter shows us, it's possible for us Christians, at least temporarily, to walk in a way that's out of step with the gospel. So I'm wondering about your walk. Does your conduct reveal that you're passing the unity test because you accept all the Christians here at CFC? Or does your life show that you're flunking because you don't accept one or a handful or perhaps many of your brothers and sisters? You know, not accepting someone doesn't necessarily look like being mean to them. It can be a lot more passive than that. In Peter's case, it simply looked like not associating with certain believers when push came to shove. So allow me to ask some pointed questions. Is there anyone at this church who you would hesitate to sit with or share a meal with? Are there believers at this church who you never talk to and it's on purpose? Is there anyone at CFC who you regularly speak negatively about to others? Are there any Christians at this church who you don't naturally want to pray for in private? Are there any believers, perhaps even in this room, whom you're not fond of? You just don't particularly want to see them on Sunday morning. If the answer to any of those questions is yes, it's possible that you're flunking the unity test by not accepting a fellow believer. So if that's you, let me offer two suggestions. The first is simply to repent. It's sin not to accept another believer. Unaccepting conduct, even if it's subtle, is out of step with the gospel. So do what must be done with all of our sin. Confess it to God. If necessary, confess it to others and ask for forgiveness and cleansing. God doesn't want you to continue to flunk the unity test. He wants your conduct to be realigned with the gospel of grace. And here's the second suggestion. I think this is the key to passing the unity test from our passage. It's to make God's acceptance criteria for your brothers and sisters your acceptance criteria for your brothers and sisters. You see, just like uncircumcised Titus was accepted at Jerusalem simply because of faith in Christ, that fellow believer whom you're most prone to stiff-arm is accepted by God simply because they've been justified by faith. 
God isn't foisting some additional acceptance criteria on them. He cherishes them just as much as he cherishes you because you and that difficult to accept believer are in exactly the same boat. Justified by faith alone. When we're not welcoming another Christian, we're acting as if justification isn't by faith alone. We're tacitly insisting that they bring something else to the table other than faith in Christ to be accepted by us. Maybe they need to share our outlook on how to spend money. Maybe they need to adapt our definition of what being on time means or what dressing appropriately means. Maybe they need to share our political views. Maybe they need to have the same perspective on parenting or education or diet or sports or hobbies or music. Maybe they need to have a certain personality, you know, a likable personality for us to accept them. When we start to impose standards on others that God hasn't imposed, we must quickly remember the gospel of grace that justifies all of us by faith alone and therefore makes all of us accepted by God. You know, one acceptance criteria I'm tempted to foist on others is that they view time the way I do. You see, I have strong personal convictions about how I use my time. I value productivity. And if I have to sit still for like five minutes, it feels like there's this little jackrabbit inside of me that starts going like this. Come on, Ben. Let's go. Let's go do stuff. But it's become obvious to me over the years, and especially since getting married, that not everyone has a little jackrabbit living inside of them. No, some people go through life in a way that, to me, looks like one of those tubular ad balloons you see at the used car dealership. You know, they're just kind of weaving and bobbing all the time. And if the day blows them this way, they're like, okay, I'll just go weave and bob over here. And if it blows them that way, oh, okay, I'll just weave and bob over here. And those types of people, the more weaving and bobbing types, they don't mind sitting still for five minutes. They don't mind sitting still for five hours. It just doesn't bother them. Nothing bothers them, even if they're not getting anything done. So here's the question. Is my approach to time more acceptable to God? Is it? No. No, it's not. God has justified Jackrabbit Ben up here by faith, just as much as by faith he's justified all my weaving and bobbing, brothers and sisters in Christ. We're equally accepted by God. So despite my personal approach to time, I'm not free to judge or disdain or in any way whatsoever not to accept my more free-flowing brothers and sisters in Christ. If I act like they're less acceptable because of how they manage their time, I'm then flunking the unity test. So here's what I have to do. I have to make God's acceptance criteria, which is faith alone, my acceptance criteria. I have to remember how justification works and then apply it to my relationships in the church. 
The gospel of grace is the answer for all of us, isn't it? Because of justifying grace, we're not only accepted by God, we're also free to accept one another. So may God help us to pass the unity test, to live lives that are gracious and kind and non-judgmental and accepting so that we may stay true to this gospel all the way to glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when we were dead in our sins, with no hope of earning justification, that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be cut off in our place, to be sacrificed in our place, to bear our sins on himself. We thank you that you have accepted us because of him. And Lord, we need your grace. We need your grace to now accept one another because of what Christ has done. So Lord, would you help us to pass the unity test? Would you help us to allow faith in Christ to be the only criteria by which we accept one another? We ask you to do that work in our lives and to help us identify and abandon any areas where we're not doing that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.